0: Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, show number 56.
1: I said, okay, we were going to purchase the business for like $85,000. I said, okay, I need a, roughly a $60,000 loan. And I never owned a business before, didn't have a degree, but I had a stable job and no debt really. And so I wrote up a business plan, approached a local bank, and they literally laughed at me. Welcome
0: to a real world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you.
1: This is Bigger Pockets Business.
0: How's it going, everybody? I am Jay Scott. I'm your co host for the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. And I'm here with my lovely co host, Carol Scott. How's it going today, Carol? doing really well
2: and continuing to be so impressed with uh, so many small business owners that we know that have made so many changes uh, over the past eight weeks, and just kind of done whatever they can to continue adding value during this interesting time. So, big shout out to everybody who has been just sticking through all of this, working hard and trying to find new ways to keep moving along. And if any of you want to be on this show to talk about that, or any of the bigger pockets podcast for that matter, all you need to do is apply online, go to biggerpockets.com slash guest. That's biggerpockets.com slash guest. We'd love to hear from you. We always love learning about your interesting stories and expertise.
0: Absolutely. Now, we have a great show today. The guy we have on our show, his name is Dave Mentz. He is so relatable. He is where a lot of us either are or have been, or maybe will be at some point in our entrepreneurial journey He started in extreme poverty. He spent much of his life in the corporate world. But he always had this entrepreneurial itch that he just needed to scratch. And finally, after almost two decades of doing other stuff outside of entrepreneurship, he finally took the leap. And when I say he took the leap, he took some major risks. He basically spent his life savings uh, buying a laundromat, a self-serve laundromat, and figuring out how to take this money-losing business and turn it around and turn it into what became actually a very profitable business. And then he bought the next one and the next one and the next one. And throughout the last, I guess, 11 or 12 years, he has pivoted his business model. He's gone into different services. He's done some online stuff. He's now branched out to a national brand and he started licensing. And I don't want to ruin it all. I want him to tell his story. But it's such a great story of how somebody with no formal education without a lot of money was able to take their entrepreneurial itch, for lack of a better term, and really capitalize on it and turn it into the American dream. And that's very much what Dave has done. He has he has lived and he has he has breathed the American dream. And I just I love this story. There's it's so inspirational and there's so much great information that came out in this interview. Now, if you want to learn more about Dave, if you want to learn more about his story or his business, feel free to check out our show notes at biggerpockets.com slash bizshow56. Again, that's biggerpockets.com slash bizshow56. Now, before we get into this interview with Dave, let's hear a quick word from our awesome sponsors. Are you familiar with Tresta? You should be. Tresta is an app for iPhone and Android that lets you do business calling and texting from anywhere with no hardware, just the smartphone you're already using. Tresta allows you to add local and toll-free numbers with tons of call management features that empower you to communicate smarter and more efficiently. This is the best business phone app on the market, whether you're a real estate investor, small business owner, or entrepreneur. Growing your business is all about networking and communication, so it's important that you're always available. If you've been carrying around a second smartphone, if you're chained to your desk, or worse, if you're giving out your personal number to anyone and everyone who you do business with, then you should give Tresta a try. Tresta is easy to configure, so you can set everything up yourself, all online. Tresta has got all the features you need to give a professional impression for your business, like call recording, auto attendance, user groups, and more all included. There's no contract, and you don't need any special equipment, just the smartphone you're already using. The best part is, it's just $15 per user per month, plus Tresta is offering a 30-day free trial, so you can see if it's right for you. This is such a money saver, we know you're going to love it. Start your free trial now at tresta.com slash biggerpockets. That's trest acom slash biggerpockets, all one word. Tresta.com slash bigger pockets. Thanks so much to our sponsors. Okay, now without any further ado, let's welcome Dave Mentz to the show.
2: Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you so much
0: for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Awesome. We're really excited about this episode. So you have a fantastic story, and we love your backstory, and we love your business story as well, and we love how your business has evolved over the last few years. Um, But let's start at the beginning, because you have a great backstory. Tell us a little bit about where you came from and kind of how you got to taking that first step to entrepreneurship.
1: Well, yeah, as a young kid, I grew up in Flint, Michigan, which a lot of people know from, from the water crisis that they're having there. Grew up there for uh, the first 10 or 11 years of my life. And my dad was transferred to Cincinnati, Ohio uh, for a job opportunity. And so I grew up the rest of my life in Cincinnati. The first 17 years of my adult life, I guess, I worked in corporate America, began in an entry-level position right out of high school, worked in five different departments, five different promotions over the years, learned a lot of different skills in a lot of different areas that all translated directly to entrepreneurship, which I didn't even realize I was learning these skills at the time. And uh, in 2009, uh, I purchased my first uh, small business here in Cincinnati, a laundromat, over a couple miles from my house. So so tell us a little bit about that. So
0: uh, you're working in the corporate world. Did you have any formal business education?
1: No, none at all.
0: Okay. So you you have no formal business education. You're working in the corporate world. You'd been there for 17 years, which for a lot of us, if we make it 17 years in the corporate world, that's kind of where we, we finish as well. Uh, but at some point leading into 2009, something triggered you to think, okay, maybe corporate world isn't for me and I want to be an entrepreneur. So what was the thing that triggered it? And where did you go from there?
1: Yeah. So I think there was a few different things, really. I've kind of had a sort of an odd journey for an entrepreneur as a little kid had the kindergarten graduation and they asked this, this kid, if he, you know, he says he wants to be a firefighter and this girl, little girl wants to be a, a TV personality or what have you. I'm five years old and they said, I want to own my own business someday. And back, oh my goodness, this would have been in the early 80s. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't near as cool to be an entrepreneur back then as it is now. It was almost like frowned upon in a lot of ways. And so that's kind of always been in my spirit. I always tell people, I'm not real sure if I was like, I don't know if you're born an entrepreneur or if you evolve. I don't really know the details of that. I just know that it's always been a passion. It's always been in my heart. I've always just kind of geeked out over listening to business podcasts like this, YouTube videos since YouTube's come about. But even as a kid, I was I was always trying to dig and it was a lot harder to find information when I was growing up than it is nowadays with the internet. And so I was always kind of kind of driven towards the entrepreneurial uh, mindset, if you will. And then when I got out of high school, I had had very traditional parents. They, you know, they encouraged me to follow my dreams within reason, (laughs) you know, the entrepreneurship, business ownership that that was risky. They just wanted me to go to college, get a traditional degree, become an accountant or whatever, and live happily ever after. And that was really the only way that they knew to do things.
2: So it sounds like your parents weren't necessarily entrepreneurs because we do hear a lot of stories about, you know, entrepreneurs now. So what were your parents doing? What was your what was you know, what was your uh, growing up situation where at age five you were already Mm -hmm. digging into these possibilities of being entrepreneur when you were older?
1: Yeah, I don't really know where it came from, but my dad, mom and dad got married very young, 17 years old in high school. Um, They had a kid right out of high school. And so I of Grew up at least the first half of my childhood in, in pretty extreme poverty. Um, okay. you know, my, my parents are great, honest people, um, but they just kind of were always behind the eight ball from the very beginning of my life. And my dad's a grinder himself, he's not an entrepreneur, but he uh he fought, you know, his entire life to uh to be able to make a better life for us. And when I was, I guess it was probably before I was even born, he joined the Air Force, and in the Air Force, he that was Back before computers were really a thing, he tested really high in the uh, the Air Force entry exam. They entered him into some pretty highly skilled training programs, and he ended up becoming an IT person before IT people existed. Really, oh wow! He actually joked till the end of his life that he he uh, he began his life uneducated, and within a couple of years he was cracking Cuban codes um, back in the seventies. So you know he he had an interesting journey himself, but definitely took the more traditional sense getting an education through the Air Force, um, getting an education in in college. He didn't get a degree, but he took a lot of classes. And he ended up having a career in the IT world. My mom was, uh, for the most part, a stay-at-home mom, uh, you know, running the household and things like that. So that was kind of their journey. But they, they really didn't even know people. I mean, they knew of, you know, you hear stories of entrepreneurs and business owners and things like that, but they didn't really even know anyone that had done it and been successful. And so I think they just always looked at it as like, that's, that's something other people do. Um, And, and they didn't, you know, mean to discourage me, but the reality is they did. And the, the benefit for me is I've, I've never been a very good listener. (laughs) I was a very stubborn child. I'm a very stubborn driven adult. And if you want to see me accomplish something, tell me I can't do it. That's just my nature. And so I probably wasn't the easiest child to raise. Uh, because I always had kind of my own idea of how to do things. And so it, it was a really interesting dynamic growing up in their household, because I re- I just remember from a very young age, just being very frustrated. And I respected my parents and I loved my parents, but I just didn't believe them. I was just like, no, I don't believe you. If if other people are doing this in the world, then why can't I do it? And, and I, never, I just never accepted anything other than that.
0: Okay. So basically you came from a background, you're, Parents were hard workers, but not entrepreneurial. You grew up in your words, extreme poverty. You got into the corporate world, and again, I think a lot of us would be like, "Wow, we made it! We're 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 in the corporate world. We're making money." Seventeen years—that's a long time. Like a lot of us would just keep doing that until the day we retire. But something happened in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, where you said, "Okay, I need to make a change." What was it that happened, and, and what
1: was that change? Yeah, when I decided to to. I decided I was ready to own a business. I looked at it and I said to myself, okay, what kind of business do I want to own? And once again, I went back to that doesn't matter. And the beauty of that was it opened up the entire world to me because I wasn't, I wasn't pigeonholed or focused on uh, being a shoe company or building bicycles or whatever. It didn't matter to me. I just wanted the process. I wanted to serve the community. And so once I felt like we were financially in a position prepared to do something about it, um, I, I just. I dug everywhere I could to find businesses for sale. I worked with a lot of people in corporate America. Some of them owned you know, franchises. And so I would pick their brain, probably exhaustingly, (laughs) follow them around like a little lost puppy dog, just try to learn from them. Um, But I was also, once again, on the internet. Um, And ultimately what ended up happening is I got on Craigslist. And back then they had a category uh, that was just a broad category, said businesses for sale. And I had probably been on there hundreds of times, probably in the past. And I would just scroll for hours, some nights, just looking at all these different, I mean, there's thousands and thousands of businesses for sale in Cincinnati alone. And so I would just scroll and scroll. And some of them, you know, I I pursued a little more and some of them I wrote off real quickly. But in in doing my homework and my due diligence for all those business models, I always came to a point where I said, "Hmm, this isn't right for me. Like, this isn't going to work. And so I always backed up, started the process over again. And it was exhausting to my wife. And she even jokes when we finally bought our first business that she just thought I was going to look for businesses for sale and never actually pull the plug or pull the trigger. Um, and so obviously one day I was on Craigslist, I found a local laundromat for sale and it was just a couple miles from my house where I had lived on the east side of Cincinnati for almost 30 years and said, I know exactly where that is. And so within five seconds, I just jumped on my car, drove up there and walked around and started looking. And that was, that, that was how I found my first location. <laughs>
2: So that's very cool that it worked out. So you did the right prep work. You were able to walk, maybe walk, drive right up the street to get to this laundromat. How did you approach it from there? Did you go right in and talk to the owner? How did you start researching and doing due diligence? How did you work out the financing? Talk us through those Mm -hmm. steps you took to approach really getting your foot in there and buying that business.
1: The first thing I did is from the time I stepped in the store, I, I knew where the location was. And I said to myself, I think this, I think I could be onto something. I think this could be from, from within 30 seconds. I was like, hmm, this makes sense. And so I immediately called the, the number on the ad and it just went to the, the business owner himself. And it turns out the ad he had for sale was a laundromat slash tanning salon. And okay. the tanning salon was next door. They were two separate businesses, but he was trying to sell both. And the, the tanning salon didn't, didn't interest me for many reasons. And so I asked him, I said, would you be able to, would you be willing to separate them? And he paused for about 45 seconds and said, yeah, yeah, I th- that wasn't my plan, but yeah, I think I'd be willing to. And I said, okay, well, if you can give me a little bit of time, I'd like to meet up for coffee sometime and let's sit down and, and talk about this. And so we found a time about a week later to sit down and just chat. Um, and in that time, uh, I, you know, I think I took several vacation days <laughs> and uh, I just, I just went all over the city trying to learn everything I could about a laundromat. And when I met up with him, you know, we were able to work out a deal pretty quickly. He just he he had he had owned the place for years. He had owned 20 laundromats at one point and he had run them all into the ground. They were all very, very neglected, Uh, really, really bad condition. In fact, the business was losing money um, when I bought it. (laughs) And so, you know, one of the things I learned in my studies and my journeys was in entrepreneurship is, you know, you, you don't ever pay for a business. It's losing money. It has no value. And I said, this one has value to me. And so, so I purchased the business, but how that journey kind of went is once we made a deal with the, the business owner, um, we had, we had a fairly decent nest egg that we had set aside for, for owning a business, probably about 20 or $30,000. And I said, okay, we were going to purchase a business for like $85,000. I said, okay, I need a roughly a $60,000 loan. And I never owned a business before, didn't have a degree, but I had a stable job and no debt really. And so I approached, I wrote up a business plan. Approached a local bank and they literally laughed at me, and so I approached another bank, and they were pretty disrespectful to me, to be honest. And over and over and over again, it, it probably took four or five months to get approved for the the, the 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 SBA loan, if you will. And through that journey, my tenacity just kind of came out. And every time somebody told me no, it just—I don't want to say it made me angry, but it just made me more driven because I knew I was prepared. I knew I had done my homework. I knew I put the foundation in place and kind of like, I didn't listen to my parents when they told me that it was too risky to be an entrepreneur. I didn't listen to it. You tell me, no, I shut them off and I went to the next bank. And one day I'm talking to one of my mentors and I told him, I said, you know, I I don't know how many banks I'm going to have to go to, but if I have to go to a thousand over the next 10 years, I will. Until that business is sold, I'm not going to stop. So this business was it? How much was it listed for? Uh, it was listed for eighty five thousand
0: okay, so you were going to pay full 85,000, you had about 25 or 30 saved. Right. And so you were going to get a loan for 60,000. That was, Correct. that was your plan. Yep. Um, and so presumably you were able to find a bank that was willing to lend you that $60,000. Um, and that took a few months. Uh, what was the process like with the seller at that point? I mean, he's waiting four or five months and, and is he still trying to sell the business? Is he helping you get the loan? Is he, is, is he, what, what what's that
1: process look like? He would, sold it to somebody else the next day, if he could have, I didn't even know any better than to put a deposit down or a letter of intent, or, I mean, I didn't have an attorney. Like I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like, I'm interested. I need to get a loan to buy the business and didn't think a whole lot more other than that. Luckily, nobody came along and bought it. Uh, luckily, he had no idea how to market a business. If you did call him half the time, he wouldn't even answer his phone. So, I mean, I think it worked to my advantage, but he he was willing to sell it for that price and if somebody else had come along and offered him that he would have taken it, and that was part of my frustration in this process was I knew at any point like somebody else could take advantage of this. And luckily, it was in 2009. I mean, it was you know really, really bad times in America, and so there weren't a lot of people looking to buy businesses, and the ones that were weren't looking to buy businesses that were losing money. So I think you know, looking back on it, I think that kind of played to my advantage as well. Um, but yeah, he pretty much sat tight. I eventually got the loan, and and we closed fairly quickly after that. So, what happened from there? What would, what did your business
0: plan look like? So, this was a laundromat that was losing money. Was it losing money because his expenses were too high, or because he wasn't bringing in enough revenue, or he was paying too much for the uh, for the location? What what was it that was that was losing money, and how did you turn that around?
1: He had run the place into the ground over the course of probably fifteen years of ownership. When you run a business, you always have to be constantly reinvesting in the business to continue to have a valuable asset. And some people you know, buy businesses and their business model from day one is to purchase the business for this price or build a business, what have you. And then for the next 30 years, just run it and take, take every penny you can out of the business. And they know that at the end of that cycle, they're going to have a business that's worth little to nothing. And they're okay with that because the numbers work. That's one way to run a business that's not my nature at all. Like I'm, I'm physically not capable of that. I'm the opposite. Like I want to be everything that I, my team and my business model does is we want to be better tomorrow than we were today. And it's, it's, it's obsessive for me. Um, I do it in my personal life with my marriage. I do it the type of father that I am and I do it. This the type of business owner that I am is I want to be stronger and better tomorrow than I am today. And so the business was in a position where he had run it into the ground And it had, you know, laundromats have a lot of commercial laundry equipment, obviously. And they're they're expensive to keep them up and running. It's not cheap. And so he had probably 60% of the store, the equipment in the store was out of order. And it was just gross. I mean, it was just shady. It was unclean. There's there's a few different models in laundromat business. And one of them is you can be an unattended laundromat, is what they call it. And basically you just set up the business so that it's all self-serve. There's no employees there. You have someone come by for, uh, you know, an hour or two in the morning, hour or two in the evening and clean. Other than that, people are providing their own labor. They just come in, purchase coins, start the machines. They do their own laundry and they leave. And as long as the place is kept moderately clean, you can get away with that business model. And when we purchased it, that's what we did. And because the business was losing money, the first thing I did before I even closed on the business, I made a relationship with a local equipment distributor and they had a really, really experienced service department to fix the machines. And so I arranged with them that the day that I closed, two of their best technicians would be in my store. And I said, by the end of the day, I want everything in here working. I don't care what it costs. And that didn't happen because we had to order parts and stuff. <laughs> but, uh, but we got a lot of stuff up and running really, really quickly. And you know, me and my wife and some friends just exhaustively cleaned the place. And the way we ran the business at first is I still had my full-time job. I couldn't afford to leave it. And so every morning I would get up at 5 a.m. and drive to the laundromat, which was a couple miles from my house. And it was open 24 hours a day. It was open all night. And so I would go up there, clean up from overnight and commute to work an hour to work. And after I got off work, I would leave work. I would commute home. And before I went home, I would drive by the laundromat and clean up and straighten up from the day. And then within a few weeks, we put a video surveillance system in the store. And so usually when I got ready to go to bed, usually around nine or 10 o'clock, I would pull up the cameras and just be able to see, you know, is the store dirty? Is it busy? What have you? And probably 80% of the nights before I went to bed, you know, my wife would go on to bed and I would run up the laundromat and clean again. And so this was how we started just purely out of necessity kind of goes back to that grit and grind. You know, I was willing to do anything legal or ethical to, to be successful. And if it meant going to work all day, uh, you know, at the end of my career, I was a telephone lineman. And so I would I was, you know, climbing telephone poles all day long in 95 degree heat and I was covered in dirt and I would change clothes at our garage just so when I went into my store, I didn't look like a homeless person. And I would go in there and and clean up and talk to people. And we turned it around in a matter of a few months, just honestly, by just some good old fashioned grit and trying to treat people the right way.
2: Great. So after those few months, it sounds like, like you said, a lot of good old-fashioned grit, treating people the right way, having equipment that works. You mentioned earlier there are different ways to run a laundromat, like the self-serve option. Did you stay that business model or did you evolve, which eventually led you to grow that business? What were the next steps to really bring that laundromat to the next level to the point where I'm assuming eventually you were able to leave your job, right? So how how did that evolution happen? What were the next steps that you to improve?
1: Yeah. So over, over the next six or seven months, we ended up, uh, turning around the business and it ended up being profitable and making some money. Certainly wasn't enough to leave my job, uh, but it, it was making money. And so it was paying all its own bills. It was paying the, the note. And so we, we brought on a part-time attendant to just a couple hours a day, come in in the morning for a couple hours in the evening for a couple hours and just clean up the store. Basically what I was doing, only she would stay a little bit longer than me and do a little bit more thorough job. And so that's what we did for the first seven or eight months. Um, And we turned it around. It was a profitable business. And one day I just looked up and said, you know, I'm by no means done, but I did it. Like, my first goal was just to turn it around and honestly get it to break even, let alone, you know, make it be profitable. And so at that point, you know, I didn't know what the future would hold, but I just looked at it and said, you know what? If nothing else, we've got a nice little side business that I can have one or two part-time employees that kind of watch after the place. I live a couple miles away. I can work my job and this will be a nice little side business for our family. And I didn't look a whole lot more into it than that, but I kind of caught the bug as it started to make more and more, you know, money. And I realized this, this was something I wanted to do again, because if I could do one and still work my job, why couldn't I do the same thing again?
0: And and what kind of revenue was, was that first store bringing in at this point?
1: Oh my goodness. When I, when I purchased it, it was probably doing seven or $800 a week. And at this point, which is seven or eight months later, it was, uh, it was probably eighteen to nineteen hundred a week. Um, wow, so, that's
2: significant. Yeah, it
1: was it was it was probably a hundred and fifty percent difference in gross revenue. And obviously, in a laundromat, a lot of our expenses are utilities because the more yep. you use equipment, the more utilities go up, and so our expenses went up with it. But yeah, there was there was some profit in there, and it was it was I was probably fifteen hundred two thousand dollars a month after I paid all the bills and paid my people and. A nice little, I'm thinking like, man, that's like my, my mortgage payment. <laughs>
0: that and, and was so, a lid. So, so, so if I'm doing the math, we're looking at like you're making on $90,000 a year in revenue, maybe $100,000 a year in revenue. You're making fifteen dollars to $20,000 in, in profit. So uh, I guess that that would be margins of about 20%. Is that pretty typical for, for that type of business?
1: No, no. That was uh, what I found after, you know, as being in the business a lot longer is that that was the beginning. Um, you know, typical margins in our business. The best operators are probably 35 to 40 percent. Oh wow. Yeah. So it, it it can be a it can be a pretty, pretty profitable business, but you gotta, you know, build it the right way. And sure. I was only seven or eight months in. So at that point I knew I was onto something and I thought, well, if this is a nice little side business, I want to find another one. I want to do this again. And I had no money. I'd thrown everything in my life at this thing, my time, my effort, my blood, sweat, and tears, my patience, and all the money that we had. And so I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I just said, you know, I, I want to see if I can find another location. And my equipment distributor, who had become a mentor to me at that point, you know, he kind of tried to pull back the reins and he was like, whoa, slow down. You're doing great, but let's, let's be patient here. And once again, I just said, you know, no, I'm not, I, no, I'm not going to do it. And so I just kept looking and looking and looking. And it took a few months, but I eventually found um, a local laundromat that was about 20 minutes from my home. It was right off the highway. And it, it conveniently, even though it was 20 minutes from my home, it was on the way to my commute, on the way to my job. And it was right off the highway and it was a great location and it had been run into the ground by the previous owner and it was actually closed. That's how bad a shape it was in. And it was in a strip mall. And so I approached the local strip mall owner and I said, you know, I'm in the business and this is what I do. I, I buy blonder mats and I turn them around, you know, I didn't tell them I don't been doing this for a year. <laughs> and, uh. I basically, you know, pitched them and sold them and they knew they had, you know, a mess on their hands. And so they said, you know, they took, they said, okay, they signed me to a long-term lease. I essentially walked into the business and got it for free, but I had to spend a lot of money just undoing the mess that was there. And because I was now in the industry and had an existing store that was profitable, I, I built up a little bit of clout and I was able to borrow equipment or money for the equipment. And so that store, we kept it closed for about three or four months. Every day, I would go into work. I had I had people that cleaned my other store at this point. Every day, I would go into work. I would work. I would leave. I would stop there. And I would work until I couldn't stand, stand up anymore. And I would go home and I would sleep. And I would, every weekend, you know, occasionally, I'd take an hour and go out to dinner with some friends. Other than that, I worked and slept. <clears throat> it took four or five months. I had a lot of help from family and friends and stuff. But we we barely had the funds to support you know, supply materials to do the work. We had no money for labor. And I, this wasn't my skill set. Like I'm not a remodeling kind of guy. And so I had no idea what I was doing. But once again, YouTube asking, calling in favors. I got a friend that does drywall. Well, I can cut and hang drywall and screw it in the wall. Can you come finish it for me? You know, I'll buy you a pizza. And so I had, you know, that place still to this day has a really special place in my heart because there was, It was, it was a very intense grind, but there's just like so much love that went into that business, making it into what it is today that it'll probably, you know, even if I don't own it someday, it'll always have a special place in my heart. So that was how I acquired my second store. And the funny thing is we, we opened, you know, we remodeled it pretty much made it a brand new store for the most part, opened it back up. And within three weeks, the store was profitable. Even wow. though I had what? even even though I had very significant debt. I mean, I borrowed a lot of money. But I, you know, within three weeks it was profitable. And one of the things I had done, I, I knew this area. This is all on the east side of Cincinnati. I knew the area really well. And I knew that there was no decent laundromats in that area at all, anywhere on the east side. And so one of the things that I saw with my first location and my second one was the opportunity to serve my community and have a viable business model where there's a natural demand that's pent up and not being met in the market. And so those are both things that were very attractive to me in the business. And, you know, because I dug in and was kind of, kind of all in and pretty tenacious about it, pretty detail oriented on the building, the facilities and things like that. I mean, we, we had people knocking on the windows before we were even finished building the store because it was closed and we would open the door and they'd say, we were wondering if we can come in and do laundry. Look around. I'm like, there's no equipment in here. What <laughs> you like? I mean, it's but been, they were ready, right? It's been a laundromat for 40 years, but we had ripped everything sure. out.
2: So So I, I just I'm I'm sitting here listening to this, and Jay and I often talk about when we talk with awesome entrepreneurs like yourself who make that leap and they buy these businesses we often draw the parallels to real estate investing because again a lot of our listeners just by the nature of us being on bigger pockets are is that they're real estate investors and i'm sitting here marveling at once again that's there's this fascinating thing right you bought this first laundromat off of Craigslist. You made these incremental changes over a bunch of months that improved the business, made it more profitable. You saw the success of that. You got the bug to go out and get another. It sounds like you just drove by similarly to how real estate investors do. They'll drive neighborhoods, look for opportunities. You saw an opportunity, a closed-down laundromat, and you just walked over to the owner and said, what do I need to do to get this? You got it for next to nothing, poured your blood, sweat, and tears into repeating that model. Over and over, so I'm I'm loving all the parallels that you're drawing here. So what else? So you had at this point, you had two. Was the second one, which was profitable, within those three weeks. So. At this point, did you were you just continuing to was the next plan in your business model to just continue replicating that model, or was there ever a point when you decided maybe we'll offer different services, maybe we'll do things a little different than just this traditional self service laundromat to continue to grow and expand?
1: As I you know, as I went through the journey, one of the things I did also is I tried to spend as much time as I could, you know, learning the industry. And in our industry, there's you know many different business models within the laundromat industry, and so I. I learned those and I made friends with people that were uh, owners of different, different business models. And so I learned different things. And as I did, it started to pique my interest. One of the things that I learned was, you know, if these two businesses are both pretty small, pretty highly leveraged, and they're making money, significant money that I can make a career out of this. Like if I keep going, I can quit my job, which had never occurred to me before then. And so at that point, I was like, I'm going to look for another location. And the funny thing is, I was as tapped out as ever could be. And so it it took three or four years for me to find another location. We took the money that the businesses were making and just kind of set it aside as a nest egg for that next opportunity, once again, preparing for the next one. And when we found the next opportunity, it was was also on the east side of Cincinnati, a great location. I'd actually been talking to the guy for over a year, trying to kind of convince him to sell it to me. And when we signed the paperwork on this business, they had what's called a drop-off laundry service in their facility. And it's fairly common in in, uh, laundromats that have, you know, attendance on duty employees there all day that if you want to bring in your laundry and you'll pay them a premium, the, the, the employees will do the laundry for you. It's called a wash, dry, fold service or drop off laundry. And it's very, very common. I had learned about a lot about it. And when we bought this third location, they had a drop off laundry service, but it was awful the way it was run. It was very, very amateurish, not professional at all. And so I said, well, if I'm going to if I'm going to go down this path, I got to learn this side of the business and I got to fix that because that's a mess. And so long story short, we ended up uh, hiring a family friend that came on with us. And I kind of kind of recruited her, if you will, to be my manager as we continue to grow this business. And she came on part time, eventually evolved into full time. And she's actually now our general manager to this day. But at that point, I brought her on and said, all right, this is my dream. This is what I'm going to do. And I want you to be a part of it with me. i was still at my full-time job. And so we we bought this third location. We decided to fix the drop-off laundry service. And at that point, I had realized that as, as nice as my stores were, and as much as people love the, the modern facilities and the new equipment and everything, the one thing that an unattended laundromat can't ever be is a fully attended laundromat, no matter how nice you make it. and Everything I've done in life, I've always tried to be the best. It's just been my my nature is to you know, get to the top. And so I realized as I learned the industry over these three or four years that I wanted to be one of the best operators in the country. And I couldn't do that if I was operating self-serve laundromats that had no attendance on duty. And so this was kind of a natural, it was a very tough decision. It didn't happen overnight because I was changing everything that I knew over three or four years in this business. And I was still working my full-time jobs. So I'm like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to trade people and hire people and manage people and all the things that go with that? And long story short, about two weeks before we closed on that third store, I quit my job. And that was, that was probably almost fi- exactly five years at that point. Okay. And we closed on our third store a couple days later. And at the same time, we hired Marlene pl- full-time, where she had been part-time before. And so things got you know kind of scary financially really quick. We were prepared, but they got scary. And so we bought this third store and we had to remodel it and fix it up and fix the drop off laundry service and start hiring attendants and you know, putting training processes in place and things like that and actually building building a different business model than I had already built the first time around. And so we did that over the course of the next few years. And the same thing happened with that store. It wasn't losing money when we purchased it, but it was probably right at break even. And it probably took three or four or five months And business started to creep up. And and over the course of the next year or so, this is probably six years into my journey, we had three stores. Two of them had drop-off laundry services. We had fixed the one at this store. And we had gone back to our second store and implemented a drop-off service there. And all three of the businesses were making significant money at this point. And so I was able to pay Marlene a decent wage for what she did and still provide for my family. And I just said, I want to keep doing this. I want to keep going. And so we we ended up acquiring a fourth store and our fourth store was also on the east side of Cincinnati. And it was also really, really bad shape. It was also losing money. And my wife says, could you buy a business that's making money? (laughs) And I said, well, I don't know. These are the best opportunities. And so Marlene and I went into this fourth store and we renovated it and we fixed the drop-off laundry service. And by this point we had you know, employee manuals and processes and procedures in place that were very repeatable. And, you know, we had built a a small but pretty solid team of her and me and some other really good employees. And so we just kind of rinsed and repeated, no pun intended. And we just put, you know, we with the fourth store, we did the same thing again, completely gutted it. We had a lot bigger budget. We had more money available to us. We could borrow a lot more money. And so we did the same thing with our fourth store. And so now we're about seven years into our journey and we've got four laundromats, but they're all fairly highly leveraged. The equipment that we use in the laundromat facility is commercial grade and it's very expensive. The infrastructure is very expensive to build out drain lines and water lines and electric lines. And it's it's not just putting some tile on a floor and some lights and some clothing racks or something like that. It's very, it's very capital intensive business. And so
0: what kind of, what kind of revenue are those four stores generating now? What kind of margins are those stores generating now that you have more experience and and you're actually, you know what you're doing?
1: Now, those four stores, if you don't count our pickup and delivery business, which I'll mention in a moment, they do a little over a million a year total between the four of them in self-serve business. The margins now we're at the top of the industry. They're in the 35 to 40% range as far as the margins are concerned. And we do still have some debt servicing that we do. So that's where we were at about the seven, seven and a half year mark. And I looked and I said, you know, we've invested heavily in these four stores. And at this point, most of them we had owned for many, many years. And so we had grown them to the point where they were kind of starting to plateau. There wasn't a whole lot more there. And I said, well, I can buy four more laundromats and keep doing the same thing over and over again. Or I went to what's called the clean show, which is a biannual or every other year. It's a trade show for a dry cleaning industry and laundromat industry. Neither one of them are really big enough to have their own show. So they combine them. And I had already made all kinds of friends in the industry and a lot of mentors and networking and things like this. And I went to the show and I'm talking to someone at one of the booths and they have uh, this software that they've created for running a pickup and delivery business for laundromat owners. And they had created it for themselves for their own pickup and delivery business. They were laundromat owners. and. I stood there and talked to them for three or four hours, never in a million years, even thought about doing pickup and delivery. I thought that's a whole different business. Long story short, after about four hours in their booth, I walked away from the booth that day and said, I'm going to do this. Like, that's, that's what we're going to do next. It made all the sense in the world that we had invested so heavily in our team. We had invested so heavily in the infrastructure and in a capital intensive business in a fairly busy laundromat. They say you'll have five to seven turns per day. The turn being every time a machine is used. So every machine in your store and a busy laundromat will be used five to seven times a day. Well, if you take 24 hours in a day and a washer takes 30 minutes to run through a cycle, that meant that 90 percent, 85 percent of the day, this equipment was costing me money. Because if it's not running, it's sitting there costing me using electricity. And so my once again, the kind of the business model geek in me just said, like, I don't care what everybody else does i'm I'm following that dude <laughs> mm-hmm. totally, and so I ended up licensing their software um from them, and they they already had a pretty pretty successful pickup and delivery business, and so I learned quite a bit from them over the first year or so and we're four years into the the pickup and delivery business now, and our our revenue from our pickup and delivery business is about two hundred and fifty times any of our stores
0: oh wow, so what is, what is so what? can you put that in actual real numbers what's what's the the revenue about?
1: Yeah, so gross revenue. Our our stores average anywhere from two two fifty to three fifty a year in gross revenue. Our pickup and delivery business did a little over six hundred last year, and if it weren't for the virus situation, which kind of put a whammy on a lot of stuff, we were expecting to exceed eight hundred this year and a million in twenty twenty one.
0: So, so a mil- a million on your pickup and delivery that basically doubles that that doubles your total revenue from the store. So your pickup and delivery by next year, assuming like all the the pandemic stuff kind of doesn't get in the way, by next year that will make up fifty percent of your total revenue. That's great.
1: Yeah, one of the things that we did when we launched our store, our retail stores are called Queen City Laundry. That's the brand, and Cincinnati is known as being the Queen City, and so that's where that brand name comes from. And they're all branded the same. And when we started Pickup and Delivery, one of the things we decided to do is to create a different brand, a different name, a different logo. And so we branded it as what we call happiness, Laundry Pickup and Delivery. Happiness kind of being a whimsical term for a happy home, like an empty nest, if you will. And so we started the business with very uh, intentional about branding and strategy and positioning it as a very premier product um, in the industry. And long story short, after a few years, our software company... Um, that we had licensed the software from, we were their top licensee and had been for, I think, pretty much the whole time. And so they approached us and they said, Hey, we have an idea. And I said, What's that? We sat down and talked actually at a different clean show, ironically enough. And we talked for the better part of a day or two off and on. And they had an idea, and their idea was to create a national brand that we would launch across the country. And essentially, the idea behind the business model was that. They wanted me to partner with them, utilize their technology, their infrastructure. They also had in house marketing people that do all the digital marketing and everything. Leverage all that with my business experience and my expertise. And they wanted me to be a mentor and a trainee to the operators that we would partner with across the country. And so it's similar to a franchise. That's where everybody's mind goes. It's not legally a franchise, it's more of like a revenue share partnership. Basically, what we do is laundromat owners throughout the country that are you know interested in starting pickup and delivery the reality is it's not anywhere near as simple as i just made it out to be it was two and a half years of of really really stressful rough times trying to figure this out by the school of hard knock and so one of the things that they learned about all their couple hundred licensees they had is that most of them were moderately successful and a lot of them were failing uh because it's just not it's a you're you're kind of combining two business models and the pickup and delivery business, whether it being a logistics business, you, you really have to be on your P's and Q's. I mean, it has to be a tight, up, tight ship. And so we lost a lot of money for the first few years. And one of the things they saw is we came out the other side and kind of cracked the code. We figured it out on our own. And so they said, well, if we can leverage your skill set, your business model, your team, because I at this point, we have a team of 40 people that report to my GM. And if we can you know leverage all those things along with our technology and our experience that we can teach laundromat owners all over the country how to do what you've done in Cincinnati. And they can take their laundromats that maybe make $150,000, $200,000, $400,000 a year, and they can turn those into a million and a half dollar business. And so we teach them the business. We fly them into Cincinnati. They train with me and my team. They go on a ride tour with my, my driving supervisor, and they actually see how the tablet and the software interacts with the customer on an actual route. They physically come into this town and process orders with my GM. They physically wash, dry, and fold laundry right alongside of our team. They spend typically a full day with me and what I call owner-to-owner, and it's, it's, it's what you would think it is. It's you know owner mentorship, if you will. So we, we've built this business model. And the funny thing is, we've only been doing this for about a year, and we're already in twenty-five markets. It's just caught on like nobody's business because we were perfectly timed. It was perfectly timed. We timed opening this pickup and delivery business as the what I call the Amazon economy was peaking. People want service to their home to their door.
0: I, I absolutely love this, and and I, I don't want to kind of I, I don't want to boil down your story into a, a few little things. But there are certain things that I keep hearing recurring here that are representative of what I see a lot of the most successful entrepreneurs doing. And you're doing a whole bunch of them. Number one, you mentioned early on uh, that there are a lot of People that'll go in, they'll buy a business, and they'll just keep running the business. They'll take the money out every year, and they'll run it and take the money and run it and take the money. And then after 30 or 40 years, um, they've taken the cash flow every year, but they basically have a business that's worth nothing. They just kind of sat on it and, and didn't do much. You're willing to, you not just willing, you want to grow. Your goal is growth in the business. And so I love that. Number two, you were willing to take risks. There are a oh, lot yeah. of there are a lot of entrepreneurs out there that want to go the safe route, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the safe route. I'm a conservative person. I tend to go the the safe route, um much to carol's dismay who 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 is less <laughs> conservative. Um, but you were willing basically you were willing to go all in and yeah. um while while that might not be for everybody, that's been part of your success because you've been willing to do the things that other people wouldn't have been willing to do. And then number three you've been willing to pivot and take risks on new business models. So a lot of people say, okay, he's got a a laundromat. It's doing well. Let's increase the revenue, decrease the expenses. We'll buy another one and another one and another one. We'll we'll, we'll stop there. But you didn't stop there. You said, okay, we're going to change our business model. Number one, we're going to go from just a self-serve laundromat to we're going to, uh, we're going to do pickup and delivery. And then after a couple of years, you said, wait a second, there's another opportunity to partner with the software company and actually build a national brand that we can license. and and so, basically, you're building multiple revenue streams. So between your 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 ruthless desire to grow, between your risk taking and your pivoting, you're basically doing all the right things as a small business owner and entrepreneur. And and pretty soon, you won't be a small business owner; you'll be a big business owner because you're <laughs> doing all these things right.
1: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. That's that. Uh, you know, I I tell people I, I'm not anywhere near smart enough to have like planned this all out ten years ago. But it goes back to my desire to never be comfortable, to be content, but not comfortable. I certainly am not afraid of taking risk. But, you know, as passionate as I am about entrepreneurship, I'm even more passionate about my family and my my uh, my role as a husband and a father. And so when you take risk, it takes a drive that was at 90% to 150% because failure is not an option. And so Once again, anything legal or ethical. I mean, the first five years that we did this, my journey, I just told you about between my full time job commuting and doing what I did in my stores. I estimate that I worked anywhere from 90 to 100 hours a week for five years. And I didn't even know I was doing it. Like I just got up and did it.
2: That is awesome.
1: And, you know, it's funny because if you, if you take the risk, you have no choice but to succeed. And the beauty of it is I've always, you know, I didn't get into business to make money. I enjoy making money and providing for my family, but I've always loved, you know, traditional capitalism. I've always loved the idea that if I do something better than someone else and I meet a demand, a pent up demand in the market, then I will be rewarded accordingly. That's traditional old school capitalism. It's not what a lot of other people make it out to be. And I love every part of that because I've you know, I've been raised to serve others. Like that's a part of who I am. That's a part of my upbringing and my family. And so one of the things that when I left corporate America that I really didn't care for was that I was in a situation where I felt like I couldn't do that. I was just kind of punching the clock and making money, trading my time for money. And a big part of why I was attracted to entrepreneurship is I knew I could do all of the above and I could do them at any level that I was capable of. And so that's been a big part of my journey is just getting up every day and saying. What do I have to do today to be better than I was yesterday? And fast forward 10 years and here we are. (laughs)
2: <laughs> and here you are. And I love that you mentioned you were raised as a child to serve others, because I yeah. think I suspect I'm reading this right um, as I'm as I'm watching you here for any of you who are watching this on YouTube, as I was watching you uh, tell your story specifically in that end part when we're kind of like at the apex of everything, where you're talking about everybody's coming in from all over the country to follow your crew around, to work side by side. I saw some pure joy in Glee oh, in, yeah. in you, because I just... You can just tell that, that it really is a passion of yours that you love that you're able to give back and help these people get started on their journey, which is really cool. So you've you've done all these awesome things, but where where are you going from here? What are you doing with your profits? What's next? What is on the horizon for Dave?
1: You know, there's a there's a lot of different things that I kind of have have going in the fire, if you will. I have a better lifestyle balance and I'm able to spend more time with my family than ever even though I'm making more money than ever. And so that was a part of, you know, it was a part of my drive was to not work a hundred hours a week forever. (laughs) Like it was a, it was a means to an end. And so now I have a much better lifestyle balance than I did. And that's, that's phenomenal. We've also gotten into some real estate investing, which is how I found bigger pockets to begin with.
0: tell, Tell us a little bit about your real estate. What type of real estate investing are you doing?
1: Well, we own a commercial building already, but it's a building that we purchased that one of our stores are in. So that was pretty natural. In the last month, we've closed on five, well, four single family homes and a duplex that are just going to be buy and hold rental properties. A couple of them were already in great shape. The duplex even had phenomenal tenants in it already. So they were more turnkey. And then the other three are more of rehabs. One of them's pretty much a total gut, but we're not going to flip it. We're going to keep it as a long-term investment. And we're going to depreciate it, and take the principal pay down, and all the all the things that come along with a buy and hold rental property. And so we're going to—I don't know how big we'll grow that, but we also just see that as as a way of serving our community and making money because people need a nice, clean, safe place to live. And there's a lot of uh, you know rental property owners that you know don't provide nice, safe, clean places for people to live. And that's not who we want to be.
0: I love the 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 just the altruistic nature of that. And I also love that uh, the first piece of that buying the commercial building that your laundromat's in. We, we've yeah. talked a lot about that on this show over the last couple months about the uh, the just the synergies between business owners and real estate investors and how real estate can be a fantastic complementary uh, investment with the business owning the owning the land or the building that, that the business is actually run out of. so love to hear that as
1: well. Yeah. When we, when we purchased the commercial property, you know, the first thing I thought to myself is I don't have to factor in vacancy. I'm guaranteed to get paid because I just have one entity paying another entity and it's a long-term, it's a 30-year lease. I'm not going anywhere. And even if I sell the business to someone else, I have control over who I sell the business to. I have no intention of it, but I have control over who they sell the business to. And because I know the industry and the business model so well, I can tell if they know what they're doing or if they're a high character person and so I control the tenant I put in my building by who I sell the business to. And we've actually we're in the process of acquiring another one of our buildings right now. So we'll end up owning a couple couple commercial properties. And and part of it is diversification and things like that, which are which are important to do as you become more successful. But part of them too are just like you know natural evolutions into into other other types of service, other types of capitalism, if you will. But yeah, what it really boils down to is, she, you know, Carol had mentioned a few minutes ago that she could tell the the natural joy and happiness that I get from helping other business owners. And I'm glad that that shows through because that is very honest and very sincere. And part of the reason that my partners in the happiness laundry pickup and delivery business approached me about doing what we're doing is because I was already doing those things. I just wasn't being paid for them. Just like I'm on here trying to hopefully help and inspire other business owners, you know, as I became more and more successful, I said, you know, there's, there's, there's many things I can spend my time doing, but you know, if you, if you've read the book email, of course, you know, the processes, procedures, things like that. One of my favorite books. And, uh, one of the things I learned through that book is, you know, to own a business, not a job. And so I, I always wanted to do that. I just didn't know how to verbalize it. (laughs) And so when I read that book, I was like, aha, and so that's one thing I've very consciously done with our operations is that's why I have the lifestyle I have is my businesses don't rely on me at all. I mean, recently at a family emergency, I left town for a month on six hours notice. And my business was fine the entire time. My GM called me twice. And when I came home, my businesses were in as good a shape as they were when I left, because that's how awesome my team that's is. That's great. And, and that takes a tremendous amount of sacrifice. I mean, there's, you're investing in people, you're building people up. You're bringing in people with the right characteristics that fit the mentality I'm describing I have. They don't have to be me, but they have to believe in what I believe in, if that makes sense. And so I've built that team. And so now we're able to, yes, leverage that team uh, to build a whole different business model in the happiness stuff.
0: That's great. And that is is true happiness. (laughs) Okay. This is the point in our show where we would love to do what we call the four more. And that's where we ask you the same four questions that we ask all of our guests. And then we give you an opportunity to tell us more about where our listeners can connect with you. Sound good? Okay. Okay. Carol, do you want to take question number one? Totally.
2: Okay, Dave. Question number one. Please tell us what was your first or your worst job you get to choose and what lessons did you learn from
1: it? Oh my goodness. I don't know if it was my very first, but I had a job at, at Taco Bell in high school where I actually worked for two and a half years and I just needed some gas money. My parents, you know, they were like, if you want to drive, get a job like that was just the way I was raised. And so I got a job because I wanted to drive and I worked there for two and a half years and I worked really hard. And, you know, when I graduated from high school, I left. All I knew is just go to work and just do what you're supposed to do. And I think I've learned a really valuable lesson there without realizing it because I'm in high school. I'm a, probably a senior in high school, and they're trying to promote me to a manager. And this is at a fast food restaurant where they promote you fairly quickly a lot of times. But the reality is, like that was a lesson to me that if I want to if I want to set high goals and and accomplish them, it, it starts with integrity, character, and hard work. And those things will take you a long ways. And yeah, there's. There's working smarter, not harder. And there's a lot of other aspects to success in life. But believe it or not, my job at Taco Bell was a really good foundation for me. And I think what it also reinforced at a pretty young age is I didn't want to work for somebody else.
0: Love that. Love that. (laughs) So funny story. My kids, they're nine and 10 or our kids, Carol, my kids, um, our boys are nine and 10 and had Taco Bell for the first time about two weeks ago. And (laughs) our nine year old was so in love with Taco Bell that he said, I want to work there when I grow up because maybe they'll give me free food. So, <laughs> totally so, so, yeah, exactly. So, so we may have a Taco Bell high school worker ourselves here.
1: Um, if that happens when they leave their job, they won't eat Taco Bell for 20 <laughs> that's, years. That's
0: probably the best reason to do <laughs> that's it. That's what I did. That's what that's I did. probably the best drink. reason I to do ever it. ever want to eat Taco Bell. Awesome. Okay. Question number two, you mentioned the E-Myth and I love the E-Myth. Yeah. Fantastic, fantastic book. Uh, any other books, if you had to pick one other book that you highly recommend for our, our entrepreneur listeners out there, what other book would you recommend?
1: Uh, The Bible uh, for me is foundational from a character perspective, but a lot of people don't realize that the Bible is full of very practical wisdom um, from, I mean, a lot of people don't realize it, but the Bible talks about debt and, and how it can be a dangerous thing and, you know, to be careful with it. And obviously it talks about character traits and how to treat each other. And all those things are applicable to business. If you, if you look at it through that lens. So that's one thing. And the other thing is a book that was very transformative for me in my early 20s is Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which everybody's heard of. It kind of reinforced what I said when I left Taco Bell and I was like, hmm, yeah, maybe I don't want to work for somebody else. The funny thing is I went and did it for 17 years, but uh, I I think it just it, it, it reinforced what I had always kind of believed that my parents had pushed back against, which was there's more than one way to make a living. One way is to work a job, trade your time for money. There's nothing wrong with that. A lot of people do it. It's what got me to where I started. It's a very respectful way to make a living. But for some of us that are wired differently, that's not the only way to make a living. And so that book was was really eye-opening to me. And if anything, it kind of confirmed what I had already kind of believed. And I was like, yeah, see, I'm not the only one. <laughs> so awesome. those, those, those three books have been very transformative for me.
0: Awesome. Excellent. Okay. Question number three, and normally, I guess we're going to go out of order on this one because I want Carol to ask you question number four because that's her question. Uh, Question (laughs) question number three, what's the best piece of advice you can give to our listeners that we haven't already touched on here
1: in this interview? The best piece of advice I can give them, and it is all encompassing in this interview and who I am, is in any business, anything you do in life, focus on value. Because value is a broad category. It's a big picture thing but it's encompassed by a lot of really small things. And so if you, you know, so many, especially in my industry, so many people, you know, well, the only people to use laundromats or poor people. They think that it's not true, but they think that. And if they're poor, then the only thing they care about is price. They don't care about service. They don't care about cleanliness. They only care about price. And it's completely and totally wrong in my industry. And it's wrong in every other industry as well. So price is a part of the value proposition. But value proposition is much bigger than price alone. And when you, when you come at it from that perspective, all of a sudden you're going to find yourself focusing on a lot of the other small things that encompass value that I've talked about for the last hour. And so, I, I mean, it's a big picture thing and you got to drill down within that. But I really believe that a lot of people, make, they work really hard. They even work really smart and they and they just like, they provide the best product in the world, but they, they just can't bring themselves to raise their prices.
2: I love, love that. that, yeah, value proposition is much bigger than just price alone. That's a oh, fantastic absolutely. quote. Love it. Yeah. okay, here's your fourth question, and the one that Jay knows I love to ask, What is something in your personal or professional life that you have splurged on along the way? That was totally worth it.
1: you know from a from a material perspective i uh when I bought my fourth store, which I think was six or seven years into my journey, when I bought that store. For whatever reason, I had always wanted a luxury SUV. And when I bought that store, I said, when this store does X amount per month or per, per week, I guess was my goal, then I will buy my family that luxury SUV. And I could afford it before I bought my first store. But it was, it, I also learned this from Robert Kiyosaki is that, you know, anything you want in life, don't say, I can't afford it. Say, how can I afford it? And I could afford it either way, but I wanted to use that as a motivation you know, a driver of motivation for me to take my company to another level. And we reach that goal and I drive a luxury SUV.
2: What kind of luxury <laughs> SUV? I want to know, because I've been looking like every day for like two years now and I can't decide. So what'd you decide yeah. on?
1: Yeah. Ours is an infinity. Uh, nice. UX80, I love UX80. that
2: car. That is such a good car.
1: Yeah. They're, it's we, we really like it. It's fantastic. It's perfect for our family. We need a lot of room. My boys are always bringing friends along. Oh, and, yeah. Like we could, never, we could never do a car. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's like a huge third row seat it's, going on there. There's yeah, a ton a, of space.
1: It's a big vehicle. It's that's a very cool. big vehicle.
0: Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Okay, now let's jump to the more part of the four more. And this is where you can tell our listeners where they can get in touch with you, where they can connect with you, where they can find out more about Dave Mentz and your business. Please tell us.
1: Yeah. I mean, as far as email, I don't mind giving it out. My email address is D-M-E-N-Z, which is my last name at happiness.com, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, and I'm, a, I'm on uh, LinkedIn and I'm on Facebook pretty regularly. So those are probably the three best, best places to reach me.
0: Awesome. Dave, this has been absolutely fantastic. Love your story. You. Love just, just- all the the great words of wisdom throughout this interview, and you you really do exemplify like that prototypical like rags to riches story, living the American dream, small business owner um, who is hopefully pretty soon not going to be a small business owner, but a very big business yeah. owner. And uh, and good luck with all the real estate stuff. Love to see that you're thank transitioning you. into real estate. So uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for sharing your your story, and we really appreciate it. Thank, thank you for you, having Dave.
1: me. I really appreciate it.
2: My goodness, seriously, Jay, How awesome was that story? It was so inspirational. See here I am. I ask you how awesome it is. then I just answered on my own, right. Don't you just love it but Truly, you know me, I know that I get all emotional, but I really had tears in my eyes listening to him half the time. He just worked so hard. He never gave up. He just threw everything he had, his heart and soul into this business. And I just love hearing stories like Dave's where he's just he's just bound and determined to make it happen and he's achieved his dreams and then some. It was just really great to listen to him.
0: Here's the cool thing. It, it's like the way he presents himself and he's, he's just like, calm and collected and it just it, you believe that whatever he does is going to be successful. And it, it's like you look at him and you listen to him and it's like, well, how how could he have failed? He just has that that mentality of somebody, I just do what I need to do and I keep working at and I keep working. And if I don't know something I learn and if I I take risks. And so I mean after talking to him it's really clear why he's been successful and it's not surprising at all to me.
2: One million percent one million percent, yes. And what you said, everything about him. It's just, it's a great reminder that we can all do exactly the type of thing Dave has done. If you're just willing to work hard, just make it happen and take those risks and just say, I'm going to do this and follow through on those commitments. We are each capable of doing just that.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Well, this was a great episode. I look forward to seeing everybody back here again next week. I hope everybody is happy, stays healthy, and have a wonderful week. For her, she's Carol. I'm Jay.
2: Now take that risk and keep working hard today. Have a good one, everybody. Thanks,
0: everybody. See you soon. Bye.